GM everyone. Today on the Pyrite podcast, we have Lord of the Few, also known as um, Loaf, I suppose, founder and master builder of Realms slash Biblioteca DAO. Realms is a loot derivative game building on StatNet, for those who don't know, and is one of the most representative, um, most representative bottom up on chain games in the uh, crypto space. And if you haven't seen how builders work uh, at their full capacity, I'd say this is your chance. So in today's episode, we'll be talking about the uh, Realms game, their tokenomics design, and um, I'll just call him Loaf, uh, Loaf or Lord, Lord's view of the uh, Startnet ecosystem. So if you find any of this interesting, please like and share and subscribe. We're on Spotify and on Twitter as well as iRed Podcast. So um, welcome. Jam, Jam, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So um, let's start with a short introduction. For those who don't know what Realms are and what's its relationship to loot, um, can you briefly explain for us what it is? Sure. Okay. So, well, everybody knows what loot is, I hope. Um, and Realms, you know, uh, after loot uh, dropped, uh, there was this flurry of derivatives popping up. And one of these derivatives was Realms. And it was, I think it was the third or fourth, or it may have actually been, yes, third derivative that popped up after the, the main loot contract. And, and Realms are 8,000 generative, generative SVG maps. And on each realm, it has, has a unique language, it has um, a unique set of resources, and it has a unique set of traits. Um, and so there's 8,000 of these, and they, they originally started as uh, these... SVG maps, but in the nature of low fidelity to high fidelity, we are translating these um, uh, low fidelity maps into higher fidelity um, over time. So yeah, that, that's kind of what the realms are. I mean, they're 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 evolving uh, uh, as the loopverse evolves, um, and uh, yeah. Uh, did you did you mint yourself? No, I didn't mint. Unfortunately, I um I'd been seeing. Uh, things pop up on Twitter about you know black text bags, um, <laughs> and it kind of I kind of ignored it for about two days, and then I then I then I kind of I think I saw someone's deeper dive on it, and it kind of just totally sniped me, and I was um, you know I, I was just very very excited about this idea of you know this this bottom up open source world build, um, so. I unfortunately did not mint the loot bags. I have a couple now, um, but uh, yes. <laughs> so yeah, basically, you know, uh, after I got sniped um, by loot, I that that weekend, uh, along with the other founder of Biblio, we uh, Redbeard, we um, decided just to uh, basically hack together a website on a weekend, um, which we called Bibliotheca. And on this website, we just created a subgraph and we graphed all the uh, kind of loot derivative, or like not all the loot derivative projects, but the ones that were kind of like getting with Steam together. And you could go here and you could log in with your wallet and you could see exactly what you had um, in your wallet. So, you know, it's kind of like an inventory um, of all the loot, loot kind of things you have. So, there, that, was, that was kind of the inception um, of, of Biblio. And like we, we didn't actually deploy, I didn't deploy the Realms contract. We, um, you know, we identified realms as, you know, is this, you know, great base layer to build a game, and you know, we really wanted to build 
a game and not just do another derivative. And um, that's why we did the, that's why we did the subgraph. And um, we we basically partnered up with the Realms dev like a day or two days after he had launched, um, and decided to try and build this game. Uh, Loot basically uh, began with eight thousand NFTs, these little black uh, images with just white words, uh, eight lines, I believe, of um, detailing some kind of items and gaming in the gaming world. So people just call them call these NFTs uh, bags, um, and there are eight thousand of them. And amongst the items, you have all these little items called like divine robes, demon hide boots, box, and dragon's crown, and ghost wands. Very um, very Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And um, I believe in the beginning when uh, when realms began, you just airdropped realms to loot holders, and there were only eight thousand realms. So. And you're now trying to build this game for all these people to play on StartNet, but you only have 8,000 realms, so that's not a lot of resources. So um, I think in the recent update, you guys came up with this thing called the Loot Fountain, which distills the original Loot NFTs and inflates the supply. So can you run us through um, the thought of how you controlled the inflation and some of the uh, faucets and sinks for these items, how you control the tokenomics of these mm. uh, of this um, uh, loot fountain uh, smart contract? Sure. Um, yeah. So this is the conundrum with uh, every you know Web three game is how do you grow without hyperinflating? And you know the the issue with the original loot contract. Well, not really an issue. It's just you know, it's the feature of it is that there's eight thousand of these things. Now eight thousand bags isn't enough to you know, have a hundred thousand people playing this game, um, and same with realms. There's only eight thousand realms, so you know that's it's not enough ownership to hit you know massive scale. Um, and so you know we're taking the approach of uh, we are going to you'll be able to take your loot bag, and you'll be able to distill the items, which means just splitting them up into their you know, instead of being in one bag, they become their individual items. And this distillation contract, which exists on um, mainnet, uh, will spit out, you know, distill the items directly onto StarkNet. And then with those items, you'll be able to trade them, um, you know, in a very, very uh, you know, cheap gas environment. Um, and that distillation will happen at a frequency, um, which we're still uh, deciding the frequency of it. Um, it might be, uh, you know, once every two weeks. It might be, it might be a um, the the the, the par paradigm gradual Dutch Dutch auction um, mechanism is actually quite fascinating. So that that, that could be an option for this um, because it's all about maintaining, um, uh, you know, inflating enough to, you know, have enough players coming in, but not inflating too much that you suddenly have an oversupply. I mean, this is a conundrum with basically, you know, current economic systems. Like every economic system has this problem, and I don't think anyone's really nailed it, right? So, yeah, it, it's it's a it's definitely a work in progress. Um, and you know, we have our thesis around how much should get distilled. Um, but I think probably the solution is going to be determined on the actual usage of the items on on, on L two. So that will actually determine the inflation rate. So, you know, if if we find you know items are getting you know used a lot on L two, then we'll reduce the then maybe there'll be like an automatic um, inflation um, you know mechanism. So you, know, you can distill every five days, but like if there's not enough, then maybe that 
five days will stretch out to three weeks, for example. Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure. It's 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 definitely um, uh, you know discussion. So if I'm a loot uh, holder, I'm owner of loot. I can use this uh, distillation contract to distill the loot items. And do I then get to sell these items on the uh, Startnet marketplace, or do they uh, just get airdropped to new players? Um, I mean, um, what's in it for the uh, loot back holders? I'm sure. I'm sure some of them are wondering about this. Mm, uh, so uh, this is also, you know. Um, contentious because you know we want to create a very rich dynamic game on mm-hmm. on starknet and so you know just like in any um, you know rpg dungeon crawler you know, there's, a, there's a wide variety of items you know from very very basic you know common to you know very very rare now the the loot item contract has you know a baked in rarity to each item um, but we feel that that's not enough so what the current plan is, is that on the first distillation of the, of, of, of the bags, uh, the person owning the loot bag will get those items one-to-one, what, what's represented in their bags. Now they will be, you know, whatever they are. It might be the Divine Road, which are quite rare, or, you know, it might be a, um, you know, an item with the greatness of level 22 um, that is super, super rare. Um, and that'll be your only ch- chance to actually um, distill those items one-to-one. And on subsequent distillations, what we are planning on doing is we'll be stripping the items of their like prefixes um, and plus ones and orders, and the loot bag owner will get um, essentially runes, which are representations of the prefix order and plus ones, and um, the items themselves will actually get put into a drop table, and this drop table will um, basically fill up in that distillation period and then be emitted to players playing the game. Um, and so it kind of keeps this inflation balance. But what this does, it, you know, what this aims to aims to do is it allows progression throughout the game. So if you find a katana, you know, a level one katana, which is just, just a katana, doesn't have anything attached to it. Um, you can find another katana and you can fuse them together to get a level two katana. And so it becomes this game of collection um, and and kind of progression throughout the game um, rather than just, you know, getting dropped a very, very rare item. So that's the current current approach we're taking. And then, you know, once you get to like a level five katana, you can apply a rune and you can, you know, give it a random uh, prefix determined by what that item could, could take, for example. So there might be five or... I think there's about eight or ten different prefixes per item, and so when you when you spend a rune, which you just burn on the item, it will roll the dice and you'll get randomly assigned a um, prefix. So what this also aims to do is that it creates like you know infinite um, number of uh, you know different items throughout the game world um, because you know there's you know um, you know seventy six thousand loot items, but actually that's not there's not that many unique items. I forgot the exact figure. Um, but you know, by having this kind of um, progression and evolution of items, we create you know much more diverse item range. Mm. Yeah. So in the distillation contract, uh, after the first cement, uh, the first distillation, which gives the original loot back holder their original items inside the loot back, the 
uh, upcoming distillations would actually split the uh, items according to their prefixes and their exactly. um, yeah. numbers to generate a new set of metadata that which uh, which could then be which then define the space of possible combinations and these possible combinations could be reached by combining the exactly. shall we yes. say the primitive or the lowest level items and then you yes. combine them and combine them again. So eventually you will be able to reach uh, some of these combinations depending on how you combine them. Exactly, yes, that's exactly right. So okay. Um, so uh, let's talk about a bit more about the resources landscape in this uh, game. So um, in the uh, Master Scroll, the recent update, we saw the introduction of a lot of new stuff, uh, buildings, wonders, relics, goblin towns, and food. So um, basically, these are resource uh, faucets and sinks. So um, any particular thought process in coming up with these faucets and sinks, and what measures are there to prevent uh, hyperinflation mm. and... Um, I, and when, when I was reading this, I, what I uh, got from it is that um, I saw a very uh, strong desire to make the game more complex so that people just don't solve it like tic-tac-toe, so they don't find the optimal way of, um, uh, of playing this game in, I don't know, two months. So, But uh, I also see there's come some kind of a need to uh, prevent uh, overcomplicating things. So what are some of the thought process there? Mm. Yeah, so, you know, obviously in a liquid environment, we need to stem inflation uh, of the resources. And so, you know, I like to think of, um, you know, all Web3 games are you know, basically how fun can you make, you know, your burn mechanism. That's like you know, the key to curbing inflation because, you know, it should ultimately be fun to burn things. Um, as that's the action, you know, that's the on-chain action. So... Um, you know, all the goblin towns, the buildings, you know, they decay over time, so you need to keep re rebuilding them. So that just keeps burning resources. That aims to, you know, um, limit inflation. Um, troops, when you build troops, they, you know, cost resources and you burn the resources and the troops die, so that's burning. Um, so they, all these, you know, mechanisms are baked in to, you know, reduce the, um, uh, you know, reduce the inflation. Um, of, of, of resources as they keep getting produced every single day. Um, uh, yeah, so in terms of complexity, um, I think you know, that, that's, that's the thing. It's like, you know, this game should be complex. You know, we're creating an eternal game, which, uh, you know, w will exist. And, you know, once deployed on mainnet, it will exist until, you know, Ethereum um, ceases to exist, <laughs> however long that will be. Um, but that's that's the... That's the idea, is that once this is deployed, um, it'll be up to the realm's holders to govern it um, entirely. Um, and so, yeah, we need to create complexity in the game. Um, I'm not trying to create too much complexity. Like, it's not... I, I, I mean, we might get to the level of complexity of civilization, but, like, that's... <laughs> I, I, think we're, I think we're a while away to be able to do that. And although StarkNet allows a lot of, you know, efficient computation, it's still not, you know... You know, we can't just run it, you know, uh, 3080 or something and, and compute all that stuff or, you know, on a, you know, on a, on a new next-gen CPU or something. Like, it's not, like, we still can't quite do that. But, um, and this is also, mm -hmm. like, a lot of, um, uh, you know, um, like, when you, when, like, on-chain games, like, is, it's only really the users that can update the state. Like, we don't want to, as designers, like, we don't want, um, to have to update the game state at all 
it should mm. be the game state should be totally determined by the players, um, as in they are making the right actions and they are changing the game state. Um, so, uh, yeah. So you know, we need complexity, um, but um, you know, it, it should be hard. It shouldn't be easy. Um, otherwise, it ends up just being like a you know, a, a DeFi farm with extra steps. Um, I would definitely like to come back to the question of uh, eternal gains and complexity. It's, um, uh, but I want to ask a little bit more about troops first. So um, obviously, this is uh, I'm not a massive gamer, but um, the way I saw uh, realms is that this is very similar to uh, Civ Six, uh, where you have troops and uh, where you have troops and invading each other's territory. So one of the things I want to ask is that okay, each piece of realm is an NFT and isn't an asset. It, I own it. So if other folks um, invade my territory and they're victorious about it, according to the docs, um, they receive 25% of my realm's uh, vault, essentially my resources. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I suppose the setting of the game is, is supposed to uh, mimic a medieval setting where you can uh, where, where you where you have different kingdoms fighting each other, and a major difference here is that it doesn't seem to allow me to annex uh, another person's uh, realm or sure. land. Yeah. I can just take their the best I can do is take their resources. So it's also a little bit different from Eve Online, where you can do that, where you can yeah. do that. So I would also imagine if uh, people are actually allowed to annex and take other people's resources, the the game might. But uh, I suppose the question I'm trying to ask was annexation ever an option? Have you guys considered it? Oh yeah, I mean, I I love Civ and I love the idea of annexing or you know raising a city to the ground. Um, but uh, I I am not sure we can do that in the initial kind of release. Um, because you know these are quite high value NFTs, so um, mm. I think it will have to be an opt-in um game. And so we have had some discussions around that, as in, you know, uh, if you're a realm holder, you know, you could opt in to, um, you know, if you opt into this version of the game. Um, you know, you could risk losing a realm, um, but you can also, you know, gain other realms. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it's definitely a balancing thing, and like um, that—that's that might any mm -hmm. any mechanic like that needs to be very like well designed, so it can't be exploitable. Um, so, like we do have this current mechanic where you can steal relics um, from mm -hmm. another realm, and a relic is basically a it kind of functions like an NFT on an NFT. So each realm has a has its own relic, and if you invade that realm and you win, you can you basically steal that realm's relic. And the only way that that realm can get their relic back is by um, you know raiding the realm that took it and stealing it back right now. So that's like a kind of like a soft annex to 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 a degree, um, but it's not like ownership over the realm. So, but yeah, I mean, look, the whole point of this game is that. You know, it is open source and it is community driven. So, you know, a lot of these ideas that are, you know, we're talking about um, come, came from, you know, just discussions with all of us. And, you know, any anybody's welcome to come and propose, you know, mechanics or propose even a new module to the game to expand it. Um, so, you know, perhaps you could come up with an annex um, module that, you know, maybe you could steal like one resource or something. For a period of turns, I don't know. Anyway, there's a lot of lot of possibilities. Um, I also want to talk about one of the new features, orders. So, um, what are they? They are um, so each realm has an order. I think this is a pre-assigned, 
and uh, realms of the same order are fundamentally unable to attack or raid each other. So uh, my first reaction was, this: okay, this will prevent something like the unification of Germany or the unification of Italy, where somebody just takes, uh, becomes so big that they are able to take over um, the resources of all the realms or a majority of the realms. Um, so a universal empire in this game will never be possible. So um, am I hitting the mark or what are some other calculations and thought process that went behind this? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the original loot contract had this idea of orders, which are, there's 16 of them, and you know, they exist as you know, these individual uh, empires um, to a degree, and a lot of the metagame that we're designing um, is is uh, catered around them. So yes, you can't attack your own order. Um, and you know the, the relic thing I just described, um, there will be a mechanic in the future where anybody from your order can go and get your relic back. Um, so that's a that's an interesting mechanic because you know everybody likes playing as a team. Um, like everyone likes playing co-op, you know, but games are social. So you know we're trying to drive the social aspect through the orders. Um, and my hope is that, you know, people will funnel in naturally to these orders, you know, and over time we'll see trading of realms, um, you know, uh, and, and it, like it's probably going to be a good strategy to have realms of the similar order or realms that exist in the similar um, vicinity as, um, uh, you know, as, as all your realms. So, you know, yeah, um, there, there is a, you know, we are experimenting with a coordinate system. And so, if you look at the atlas, um, that exists on a you know um, on this huge x y plane, and each realm actually has its own x y coordinate. So that's that's something that we're exploring. And if you look at, also look at the atlas, uh, orders are like congregated in, on different continents. So you know you, you're often you you realms exist next to the you know um, next to the same order. So it's probably going to be um, beneficial to have realms of the same order. So you guys also recently introduced this uh, concept of an adventure, which um, I, I think it begs for elaboration. So um, it's a kind of character represented by a soulbound NFT, and you can equip uh, loot items to them, and um, most peculiarly, they can die. So how do these adventures uh, fit into the game, and uh, why soulbound tokens? So uh, touching on what I was saying before about the loot items, so the loot items exist you know, on Starknet, um, but you know they need a place to live, and these adventurers is where they live. So, an adventurer is a—it's um, not really an NFT because it's soulbound, but you know it, it's its own. Like you know, it has a to it has an ID, and um, they're free to mint. So, you'll be able to go to Starknet, and you'll be able to mint an adventurer. You'll be able to pick its name. Um, and maybe a couple of other parameters. And once you've done that, you'll then be able to equip it uh, with uh, any of these loot items. So, you know, you know it's helm, weapon, etc. Um, and with this adventurer, it kind of acts like a um, standardized character um, across all the realms and all the loot infrastructure that we're building, and anybody else can build um, and support it. And so, just like, um, you know, ERC721 is a, um, you know, a token standard, uh, these characters are the, it's like a character standard. And so we've created this interface for them um, that allows anybody to um, build anything, uh, you know, new experiences that support um, that interface. And 
uh, this, this, this character exists 100% on chain. There's no logic, um, you know, on any central servers. Um, all its metadata exists on chain. Um, and they're soul bound because I, I think it's kind of like from a character perspective, I don't believe like, uh, you know, having a limited supply is the right move for that. Um, for, for like, you know, uh, for game characters, NFT characters. Um, I, I don't want them to be tradable. Um, I want them to kind of develop intrinsic value to the player um, because they know they can die um, and they can earn XP and stuff. Um, but the value comes from, you know, looking after this adventurer. It doesn't come from, you know, how much you can sell them for, um, which I think is really important in this game when everything, you know, on-chain is often quite financialized. Um, this is still kind of financialized, but it's not really. Um, it's it's the items that you evolve over time that carry value. It's not the, the character itself um, that you trade for, for money. Um, and there, you know, there's no supply limit to them, so you know you can just keep minting them. And you know, if if you kill one, it'll just exist in your wallet forever as this like you know. So your wallet end up, ends up just becoming a graveyard of, of dead adventurers <laughs> um, <laughs> for eternity. So you know, you can see how many you've killed. Um, but you might get atta- quite attached to these things. That's that's yeah, that's the idea, you know. Um, I don't know. Maybe you have to feed them. I don't know. Maybe not. But <laughs> it's like a little on-chain Tamagotchi. Um, <laughs> so for, uh, for these adventures, um, um, you have designed an interface for them. So basically, it also means that. Um, if I'm not working on the Realms project, I'm working on another project, but I want to build on these adventures, I'll be able to. I'll be able exactly. to take them yes. as data and then build further upon them. So I could build parallel mini-games. Um, exactly. Yes. Well, parallel realms. Exactly. That's exactly the point. Is that So we'll, we'll be building you know, functionality within the Realmverse with these adventurers and you know, with the Crypts and Caverns um, you know, and other things. Um, but the idea is that, you know, this is open, this is permissionless. Um, we'll, we'll build out the tooling that'll allow people to easily build these things. It'll often, it'll obviously have to be on, on StarkNet because that's where the tooling will be made. Um, but yes, you know, anyone can come along and, and support this. And then, you know, as your adventurer, you know, you know, say there's a new contract that pops up and it's like a PVP between two adventurers. You know, you can go and, uh, you know, interact with that contract and you know maybe maybe you kill another adventure and you get its item get get the items or something but yeah mm-hmm. anybody can build on that i'm just going to quote from the doc so realms is the eternal game because once production of uh, production version of the game is live it will exist for the length of the ethereum's data storage um so um Basically, I find this idea to exhibit vague similarities to the idea of a hyperstructure, which is basically primitive protocols that can run forever and free without maintenance, interruption, or intermediaries. So I presume that calling yourself the eternal game, you're envisioning yourself to be a hyperstructure. So but I also wonder, does that mean um, realms will one day cease development and the development, the dev team could just like, okay, this is done. We can now um, uh, exit this, and it was run like clockwork, just like how God was ever creating the universe, he just exits. Is that kind of your uh, know, uh, design? Um, <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, I you know, I definitely believe in like immutability in contracts. Mm-hmm. So you know, money markets and you know, DeFi protocols. You know, they should be definitely immutable. 
as in no upgradeability, like any swap V3 or V2, etc. Because you've got to, you have to know, you know, exactly what's, you know, what you can get out of it. Now, I think as you know, these app, these on-chain applications become more complex, um, which is really what you know games are. They're, they're you know, they're. I think we have twenty plus contracts all interacting with one another. Um, there's a lot of things going on. So, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, I don't think it should be 100% immutable as in like we no upgradeability. Um, but in saying that, I think upgradeability should be managed by the owners of that protocol. So in this sense, it's the realm holders. They have governance rights over this game. And so they will be able to vote to change, um, you know, change things in the game, you know, maybe change some balance or, you know, include a new module into the game. Um, and it, it's going to be determined by them. So our job won't end when, uh, you know, we see ourselves as just like the, the you know, we are the custodians of this hyperstructure. Um, I mean, I don't think it's a full-blown hyperstructure according to that article. Um, we tweak a lot of the boxes, um, but obviously we're, we're not the contracts aren't going to be fully immutable, but um, yeah. So, so like you know, we're we're not going to just finish, and you know, that's it. It's you know, we want to build this community of um, developers that will help to maintain and um, you know keep pushing it forward, um, and you know, that's where we will fit in as well. Um, but I think you know, in, in a decentralized environment, we're we're just kind of spearheading this and getting it to a point where it can do that. Um, mm. uh, faster than just you know, DAOs are great for you know allocating capital, um, but you know if you really want to make the wrong decision, you got to ask everybody. That's a famous quote. But like, especially like in a, you know in a startup environment, which is like what we what we are right now, is you know we need to move at velocity, and like you know we can't be asking every um, you know question uh, asking direction about absolutely everything. The DAOs allocated us funds to build the game. Which is what we're doing. Um, and once it gets to that point, then you know it, it will be the tooling will be made, the game will be done, um, you know, made, and people can contribute to it easily. Um, but anybody mm -hmm. can. So yes, I hope to be playing this game for a long time, long time, and, mm -hmm. and contributing to it too. So do you actually think it is possible for a game developer to a, a blockchain game developer to? Okay, complete building the game and then exit because it is certainly possible for a DeFi protocols. They just build everything mm. and they um, yeah kill well, the uh, I, upgradeability. Yeah, and just leave. Is it yeah. possible for a game? I think so. Yeah, it depends on the game. Like I, this whole new on-chain game space is it's like a totally new medium. I think there'll be games like Realms, which is you know, um, like we have a level of complexity and it's probably going to be more complex the final production version than we thought because. You know, we're trying to add depth and, and you know longevity, and that's the only way to do that is really to play the game and you know iterate on it. Um, but I think some smaller games will you know crack this like you know crack the code of what like a you know almost like a mini game that runs forever, um, and that could potentially be something that like is totally immutable um, that you know anyone could jump in and play. Um, and you know you can jump in and play a bit, and then you can leave and you come back. Um, and that that could that, that that's that's I think that's definitely going to happen. Um, yeah, it's just 
you know, we're kind of in this weird and wonderful stage right now with on-chain games where there's really not that many people actually doing this. Like, most of the games that are getting funded, you know, by ridiculous valuations um, and, uh, you know, in the space, uh, I'm not, not to say that those games won't be fun. I think some of them will probably be really successful. Um, but, you know, that's not the design space that we're um, in. We're, you know, we're trying to do everything on-chain. Um, uh, so, yeah, and, 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 you know, by doing that, everything on-chain, it comes with its constraint because you have to do everything on-chain. So, um, I, I think if anyone's really interested about this, like, um, uh, it, it's, it's like board games are probably the closest analogy to, like, on-chain games because in a board game, it's really the humans that are changing the game state. You know, there's no computer or anything. Uh, and so that's it's probably, like, I think... There's going to be some translation from successful board games into on-chain games. Um, that's that's I think I think that's probably realistic. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, amongst many uh, game developers, um, there's definitely a tension between making the game in, an enjoyable experience for the gamers and incorporating DeFi elements uh, here and there. Um, so in RuneScape, I think this is never a problem. I think RuneScape was the is the go-to example for people to demonstrate. Look, game buyers are possible, but the problem is that um, with RuneScape, the, the reason why this tension was never a problem is because the stereotypical Argentine being able to make money was never intended to make money by game design. It, it's just it it arose out of the, uh, the the game design because it was so fun and the the element of it being fun generate economic demand and the stereotypical Argentine just uh, fills up that demand. So I think it's also the same with EVE Online. So um, and in both of these cases, the profit-minded players are the utmost minority. The majority of players either play for free or they lose money. So in Realms, there's the uh, Nexus contract, which collects fees from the NFT market and the EMM and emits those rewards to stakers. Yeah. Who might not be gamers? So there is definitely a DeFi element there. Yeah. And um, to quote yourself uh, just earlier on, um, uh, to very suspicious individuals, this might seem like DeFi with extra steps. So do you think it is important for a uh, on-chain game to be designed so that there is uh, so that at least some folks can make money? I, I think tokens are like excellent ways to bootstrap networks, um, and you know you can do this. In, uh, many ways, um, and so you know what you know. We're not designing a DeFi protocol, but you know we exist in this ecosystem where everything is tokenized. You know there is a path mm. to um, you know liquidity somewhere through the tokens. Um, and so you know when we're not trying to create a DeFi protocol, we're just trying to create a sustainable protocol, um, a sustainable gaming protocol. And you know one of the ways to do that is to you know distribute some. Um, you know, uh, allow people to, you know, contribute lords and, you know, earn, earn fees by doing so. Um, and so it's, you know, it's not like, it's not a core part of this game, as in like, it's not a DeFi game. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, I see AMMs as like one of the greatest inventions, you know, of the last decade. Um, uh, you know, probably one of the, probably the greatest invention, uh, you know, use case for blockchains um, right now. And, you know, that's why we're using it in this game, um, because, you know, they are, uh, you know, you want, they, they almost act like NPCs in a game environment, because in an NPC, you know, in Diablo, 
you know, there's always that guy in, in the town um, who you know, buys his stuff and sells his stuff instantly, doesn't ask questions, right? Like, it, <laughs> it, it's like, you know, that, and that's how I see AMMs um, being used in games moving forward, is that, you know, they, they act like NPCs. Um, and so from a gamer environment, that's what you want. Like, you know, NFT markets are great, but ultimately you need a match a buyer and a seller. Um, and this is why Pseudoswap is, you know, is a, is a massive innovation um, because, you know, it, it's it's kind of you know, taking the AMM approach of to, to NFTs. Um, and so there's a buyer and a seller instantly. But it really only works when, you know, the NFTs themselves are, um, uh, you know, um, it's kind of semi, semi-fungible as in like they're pretty similar. Um, but in a game game environment like, you know, Katana, like a Katana level one, for example, like that's you know, 50 Katana level ones. They're all the same. Like, do you really want to put 50 orders up in an order book? Or do you want to just want to be able to buy one instantly? Or do you want to be able to sell into it instantly? Um, mm. So, you know, we, we definitely have taken some inspiration from DeFi um, contracts like AMMs and, and you know, um, single-sided staking. Um, but they're not like, they're not like crucial to winning the game. They're just like these things that exist to help the game, um, so to speak. That's a pretty uh, interesting analogy there to call um, AMMs and DeFi primitives as uh, non-player characters. So I also <laughs> want to ask a little bit. It, it is. I, I've never heard of that before. I thought it was pretty yeah. interesting. Yeah. So. Um, I wonder, like, um, in some of your uh, dev and community calls, there was a lot of concerns about farmers and bots wanting um, What are some measures that the game has uh, implemented to limit their existence and the damage they can inflict on uh, proper, honest gamers? Yeah, I think, I think you're never going to avoid bots in games. Like, they exist. Um, it's a matter of leveling the play, playground um, uh, for, for bots and humans. So, Really, the only advantage a bot has is that you know it can execute, you know, automatically, but it doesn't have any front-running capability um, over a human. So obviously, you know, a bot never sleeps, and you know, it just keep ticking on. But um, so, you know, we're we're not opposed to bots, and I think you know we we're just creating the tooling that will give everybody a chance to. Um, so as in like. If if something can be botted, we'll build the tooling for it to allow anybody to do it. For example, so it's not just going to be in the realm of, okay, I know how to do you know this crazy arbitrage stuff. Um, you know, anybody will be able to do it easily, and so it gives everyone an even playing field. Um, but all that's kind of from a technical point of view, from like a mechanical point of view, um, like you could automate attacks to people um but like you still there's still like time as an element in this game so you know you need to know when you can attack um you know and, and like that's exposed to the bot and it's, and it's exposed to the human so yeah someone could write a bot to attack automatically but the human could also just do it um if they time it right so it doesn't really give bots much of that much more of an advantage um and i think as long as we make the tooling easy and accessible, then it's fine. Um, it's just a, it's the world of these on-chain protocols um, that bots will exist in some form. I wanted to um, segue here into a question about uh, minigames. Um, so uh, 
is, is uh, realms in general an open open protocol? That I think from the discussion that we just had, we are uh, realms is definitely one of those uh, games that would encourage and allow people to build on top of. Um, so you can have uh, mini games branching off. Uh, in, say, for example, through the uh, adventure interface and perhaps through other interfaces of the uh, game as well. So, um, any guesses or predictions as to how uh, these mini games that are going to build on realms might look like? Uh, so, well, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's a few um, avenues here. So, there's there's the Realms Eternum game, which is what we're designing, which is this core game around the realms, first realms. Um, and in on that game, it's designed in a modular fashion that allows people to build new modules. So, we have our you know our settling module, we have our resource module, we have our um, combat module, um, we have our food module, etc. And uh, you know, people can someone could come along and say build a, a world boss module. And now, this world boss module um, might you know, randomly spawn a monster at coordinates um, somewhere in the map, you know, every 24 hours. Um, and that's what it does. And um, to to go and attack the monster, uh, you know, you need to send your army. And you also need to, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, um, spend five gold or something, um, or, or five lords. And by doing that, you know, you can attack the monster. Um, but you might lose because the monster might kill you. Um, but if you kill the monster, maybe you get something. Now, the designer of that module will take a small percentage of the fees um, of everybody that's come to attack them, as in like that five lords. So this kind of creates this app store-like model where um, it incentivizes developers to come and build in this kind of ecosystem. But it's all permissionless. Um, and it's really the choice of the realm holder to actually interact with that contract. Now, we'll probably like whitelist a bunch of contracts which will make it easy for players. Um, but, you know, in this environment, you know, everything is open and permissionless, which is what's great about it. Um, so that's kind of an example of, like, what someone could build for Realms. Um, and in Adventurers, um, I think I explained one before, but, you know, it could be, you know, a PvP, for example. I think someone dropped a good name the other day called Dungeons and Degens, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> um, and, like, you know, the Dungeons and Degens could be a PvP battle arena where, you know, you, you, you suit up your character, the adventurer, and, you know, you drop him in a pit with, um, you know, another adventurer, and you, you battle it out, and basically whoever wins gets the other items. Um, now, that would be quite fun. Uh, you know, that, that could be another module. That, well, that, you know, that, that could be an experience someone could build for the adventurers. Um, so, you know, and really the sky's the limit of what people can build. Um, I think um, in EVE Online, they had a uh, mini-game where you can solve, um, help solve scientific puzzles that are real. Basically, scientists submit them, Ooh. and then you can solve them, and then you earn uh, part of some, some, uh, some of the in-game currency. I, I think one of the first, they had three uh, rounds. I think, the, uh, I can't remember, so the first round, it was some kind of protein folding, and then the second Ooh. round was something along the lines of um, searching for exoplanets. And the third round has something to do with um, COVID. And um, so uh, there's cool. probably perhaps some room in here for that kind of uh, composability. And uh, I kind of wonder, do you worry that some of these, um, because it's open and it's permissions, do you worry that some uh, malicious actors might use this as a revenue to um, 
as an avenue to uh, introduce um, malicious contracts that can screw up the entire tokenomics of the game. Uh, well, this is why, like, you know, any game that gets included into the core game state um, will have to be, like, approved by the DAO and go through a vigorous kind of, you know, whitelisting process. So it's not just like we're going to include anything. It's, um, you'll, you'll, uh, you know, if you want to have, you know, create a contract that will change the game state, then that will have to go through vigorous process. Um, now, if you if you want to create a contract that just, you know, supports an adventurer, um, but doesn't actually change the game state, then it's up to the individual um, to interact with that contract. Um, now, we'll probably have a like have like an auditing team of just to audit these things. Um, but that you know that's if you take your realm and you go and interact with the world boss, for example, that's not really changing the game state. That's just changing your state. And so it's your choice to do that. Um, it's not. It's not affecting the game world. Um, but any like massive game world changes, as in like you know the trade route module or you know a change to you know um, combat system or something, that's all. All going to have to go through like a committee and, and um, a balancing mm. kind of system. So, did you run into any limitations while developing on Startnet? And uh, what are some suggestions you might have for new developers looking to build on Startnet? Um, Cairo is definitely a quirky language. Um, it was developed in-house by Starkware, um, so it wasn't really designed to be a um, you know general-purpose language for you know your average average person. Um, uh, so it does definitely has its quirks. You know, you can't do loops, so you have to do recursive functions. Um, some of the syntax is a little weird, um, but you know it's it's like any language. Um, once you've kind of learned one, and you fully grok the thing, like you know fully understand it, like the roots and leaves. Um, you know, learning a new language isn't that hard um, because they all work the same way; they're just slightly different. Um, and so, if you're coming from a Python background or a C background, uh, Cairo would be pretty easy. Um, uh, so you just, you just have to dive in like anything. You know, you got to learn the roots before you learn the leaves. Um, and so, I I like maybe I'm just biased now because I've been looking at so much Cairo for so long. But I prefer writing it to Solidity, and like I think it actually has a quite a. If you write it correctly, um, you know, it has a very nice composability to it. Um, mm. uh, and you know, you don't have any contract size limits um well maybe you do but i've never hit it um you don't have function size limits um and so it's just in a for a game in a game environment um, i think it's far superior um to solidity um solidity was designed to be like this kind of low power um general purpose kind of you know machine uh ABM, i mean um and you know so it was, i don't think it was ever designed to be uh, you know, it was designed to create these like very, very complex, um, you know, um, applications. Um, and, you know, by just taking the EVM and, you know, transporting it into, um, uh, into a layer two or a side chain and just cranking up the knobs on it, I just, I don't think it's the approach that we need to take for the next 10, 15 years. I think the approach that we take is, um, you know, let's solidity and EVM is great for this general purpose platform, um, but we we like if we're going to keep if we're going to build apps for the next twenty years on layer twos, 
then like let's just not take any baggage and use the most efficient language um which i think it right now is 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 um cairo and the cairo vm um, for other reasons as well not just uh not just a language um, yeah it, like there's definitely a lot of quirks to it um i think testing is really annoying um, but it's getting a lot better. I think look, it's still an early language and it's still an early ecosystem, but it's evolving at light speed. Um, when I started using it, like end of last year, it was super primitive. Like I don't think it didn't even have timestamps, um, and the tooling was just terrible. But now, like there's thousands of people building on it um, because people, once it clicks with people, they realize like the the you know what you can do with it. Are you um, are you in general bearish on uh, the EVM? No, I think the EVM. I think the EVM is great. I think it's like mm. I think it's great for you know a general purpose um, platform, um, and I, mm. I like I think yeah it's it's going to have a lot of use age, um, uh, because it, you know it it is easier to write. There's a lot of tooling built for it. Uh, it's definitely not going anywhere. That's for sure. Mm. I think it's just you know if we want to create you know very very complex provable applications, um, uh, then you know that that you know can really leverage the um, so, so, so the difference between um, EVM and 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 kind of um, the, the Cairo VM is that um, the EVM is like linear scalable um, in computation. So and you know the Starks and Cairo VM is logarithmic. You just keep um, you know packing that comp, comp, computation in um, until you reach a full proof um, because it's really like compressed computation. Um, that's really what a stock is. A compressed, like, provable computation. Uh, so, yeah, I'm definitely not bearish on uh, on the EVM. I'm just bearish of it for developing complex um, applications like games. In a recent update, you also made it possible for the on-chain battles and uh, realms to be translated into contextual visuals using stable diffusion. That, that's quite a mouthful. So um, can you explain to us what, what's, what's going on there and how this um, development is going to expand in the game in the future, uh, where it's mm. going to be applied, mm. and so on? Yeah, yeah. so stable diffusion is um, it, it's kind of like a DALI 2, uh, but open source, so it's free. And you know, Dali two, everybody knows now is you know this text to image um, creation via AI um, uh, run by um, what's called Open, Open AI. And you know, Stable Diffusion just came along you know a few weeks ago and basically released this um, new AI model that's open source, so it's free, um, and anybody can use it. And it creates insanely good images, like you know, almost you know at the level of you know, uh, a human, um, and but it does it in about thirty seconds. And so, um, I, I, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, I'm really, really excited about this technology. But I'm really, really excited about it in, in applying it to areas what that aren't possible for a human to do. For example, like mm -hmm. I don't really see its benefit of just like, okay, let's use an AI image and mint it as an NFT. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see that as valuable. I, but I, what, what I see as valuable is like using that technology and creating images in 30 seconds that give context to what the user just did. And so what we're doing is, um, after a battle event, we're interpreting the information of that battle, we're running it through stable AI, and we're outputting like an image of that battle in, you know, I think it's less than 30 seconds, it's like 20 seconds or something ridiculous. 
Um, and so, you know, and that image will be different every time because the inputs will be different. Um, but, you know, it creates this like masterpiece in 20 seconds that a human could never do. And it will keep doing that forever. Um, and so every image will be different. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it, it blows my mind every day as like we, we posted that on Twitter um, because we kind of had this idea like three months ago, but the models weren't there. And we're like, okay, we can't release something if it's going to be worse than Dali because it'll just look bad. Um, and it's just because the models weren't open source because it costs like, I think Dali costs like a ridiculous amount of money to train. And I think Stable Diffusion costs, you know, half a million dollars to train or something, which is it's not the type of money that we have. So we couldn't do it. And also we're not, um, we do have an ML engineer on the team, but like, you know, we're not ML, you know, on, on the on the bleeding edge of ML, which is really what this is. Mm. Um, yeah, so so you know we're using this tool to you know give more context to the player when they're playing. Um, yeah, and you know we'll probably create you know interpretations of like you know the siege of um, you know Shlomlom or something, and you know give all these like um, Renaissance style paintings, you know big um, names, you know like the failed siege of you know. Long, long or something, um, but yeah, there's, there's, it, it, it's it's a really interesting design space to use that tool in this area. Um, I think, yeah, we're definitely not going to be the only ones thinking of this. Um, yeah. I want to ask you: Do you think it's bearish for um, art artists in general? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm sure a lot of artists are going to be very angry at this thing. Um, but you know, the best way to adapt is you know. Maybe no, I don't know what like these things aren't going to replace artists. Um, like they might replace you if what you're doing is like a very common piece of art, and um, but really it's a tool that artists can use. Um, because it it's a it's art in itself coming up with these prompts. Like if anybody's used these yeah. things, like it's not just like typing in the first sentence and then like it spits out something amazing. It takes a lot of tuning and 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 working out. Um, and like working with the machine to get you what you want. It's not. It's not actually that easy at all. And I, I'm still. I'm very, very new at it. Um, and like I. Uh, so it, artists that like. I think artists should adapt it. And like, if you want to, like, you know, increase your output, then you know you could use this thing as like um, a prompt engine and you know a, a kind of a concept factory for you. Um, and use it and then adapt what it spits out. And so, you know, you can basically have two minds working on the same problem. Well, however many minds you want to call that thing. But, uh, and you can, you can probably get a lot more done. You'll probably get a better result as well. But um, it's, I don't think it's going to replace artists. Um, it's definitely not going to replace them entirely. Um, I mean, some, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But yeah, no, definitely not. I think you're also uh, quite close to Guilty Gyoza uh, from uh, Topology. So they are building a uh, physics engine on StartNet. Um, so what what are some of the... Um, I suppose the question would be, like, what are there... Are we looking at some kind of collaboration? And I suppose the second question would be, like, um, what kind of applications do you think are possible uh, on StartNet that have not yet been uh, explored? Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I, I love what Guilty's doing, and I, 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 I consume all of his, um, all of his writings. Um, 
I think he's uh, he's a brilliant engineer and he's pushing the boundaries of what's possible. Um, I and I yeah we we've we've talked quite a bit and I, I hope to do something in the future um, with topology. Um, but we you know we both have a lot on right now. So um, mm. uh, and in terms of what you know what people haven't done. Um, I think it's you know, uh, people need to forget like I don't know. I, I guess people need to forget just like Open Zeppelin and and like token standards. This, this would be my advice: is like forget what like a standard on Ethereum is. Like Cairo and Starknet is a totally new computing platform with like way more capacity to like do compute. Um, so. You just need to forget kind of like how you did things in Solidity and just like think what's the craziest thing that I can do um, and I can, you know, that that like that needs provable computation um, and to, then just go and do it. Um, but don't think about what can't like, don't think about what you can do on Solidity. Just like, um, just like forget what you know and just, you know, be un unhinged and just go crazy um, because that's what you can do. I mean, Guilty created like a, um, a three-body problem simulator in Cairo, as in uh, three, you know, bodies orbiting one another um, in space, and they're all their positions are computed in real time, um, which is mm -hmm. insane. Um, like that's the type of stuff that you can do. So I, like, I, I would like to see a lot more like three-dimensional um, engines uh, come out, like, you know, uh, three three-dimensional kind of like battle simulations um all three dimension like flight you know um like prove where things are in a three-dimensional space um that's possible so like that's um that's something that i'm exploring in the game that we're, we're looking at doing so yeah this it's really like you know like create on-chain realities like new realities with different physics that's what that's what you can do Thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. Well, if you, um, listener, find this interesting, please like and subscribe and share. Follow Realms on their Twitter and Discord. Cheers.